I'd like to transition into our message this morning, which I have titled Christian Certainties for Those with a Faith Under Threat, as you see in your bulletin. Has your faith ever come under threat? Have you ever been uncertain about your faith? Have you ever experienced doubts? Doubts that you believe? Doubts in what you believe? Well, if you're like me, then I assume that you have. And I think it's safe to say that all Christians have experienced a doubt at some point in their walk with the Lord. Uh, Each of us at some moment, even if for a short time, have struggled to make sense of our faith and the Christian life. Would you agree? I think it's fair to say that we've all experienced that to some degree. We often experience doubt early in our Christian life as we try to kind of make sense of what God is doing in our life. I think my kids, maybe your kids, maybe you have that experience. It's like they're just figuring out what's, what's going on here. How am I supposed to feel? Uh, maybe you got saved later in your life and you were asking some of those questions as you got older. Uh, during this period, of course, the devil, I believe, the Bible says, is often at work trying to snatch away the seed of our faith. And if not for some of that early zeal, that we had when we first believe, uh, first believed, it, it might, you know, our faith might not have travailed. It's like God gave us that early zeal in our faith to kind of protect us from uh, that seed getting snatched away. But as we continue our journey of faith, we experience tribulation. Some of us experience persecution. And that causes us often to question God. Sometimes we have doubts because, well, I like to say everyday trouble, right? Life has trouble in it, (laughs) everyday trouble. Uh, Everyday trouble seems to outweigh, well, the benefits of our faith. And so doubts emerge, you know, also as we we see, as we're walking through, you know, this journey, we, we begin to see unrighteous people prosper. We doubt, you know, the benefits of our faith, faith, the people that don't acknowledge God, don't follow God, they seem to be prospering all around us. Uh, In addition to this, you have the pleasures of this world that creep in, and they oftentimes overshadow our faith. You and I uh, begin to miscalculate our blessings, uh, at least with our feet on the sand. And so when our faith is threatened in this way, we sometimes question the very character of God. We doubt that God is good. Uh, we, We doubt that he is sovereign. We doubt that, as Scripture says, that he is a faithful God who keeps covenant and is steadfast. Now, I think these threats come from kind of two different places. There are two kind of major categories that these threats come, and there's kind of this internal threat, and there's an external threat. So when you think about internal threats that uh, seek to, um, you know, cause, you know, a faith under threat or cause us to doubt or have uncertainty, uh, these internal threats are those that we might attribute to our sinful nature, our sinful nature inside of us. I think Danny spoke uh, about this last week uh, at length. Uh, this is what the Bible calls our flesh. Maybe you've heard that, our flesh. That's what the Bible calls our flesh. These are passions that rise up inside of us. Uh, Paul speaks of this in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. Uh, he talks about the way that these passions present themselves, and he says this. He says they are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
These are all those internal passions that rise up inside of us. And he is very, Paul is very direct in exhorting us against these sinful fleshly passions. And he says in Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You put to death the deeds of the body. That's his exhortation against those internal uh, struggles inside of us. We are to put them to death. We are to kill them, to murder them, to murder and kill the manifestations of our sinful nature that express themselves in all of those ways that I just described. Now, in, in addition to those internal threats, there are external threats. These are things like suffering, persecution, Trouble, again, everyday trouble, lies, false prophets, those things are also, these are external threats to our faith. And these are often situational. They're situational. And so a family member dies. A loved one, you know, is diagnosed with cancer. We find ourselves maybe in a battle with cancer. Our company downsizes or shifts its focus and maybe we lose our job. Maybe we, find, maybe we have a job, but we find very little fulfillment or joy in a job that we've spent our entire life preparing for. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe you've always dreamed of having a family, and now that you do, you're wondering what you've got yourself into. Although you love your family, maybe sometimes, if you're honest, you, you wonder or you think about not having a family. Conversely, maybe you dream about having a job. Maybe you dream about having a family. Maybe you dream about having a spouse because you don't. These are all situational examples. And in all of these examples, there's the potential for our faith to come under threat, the potential to question God's plans and experience doubts about our faith. Why would God allow this situation? Now, if you're a member here at Rosedale Bible Church or you are a regular tender here, you know that we are in the midst of change. We're actually always in the midst of change. We just don't realize that. Uh, but, when, but it's acknowledged, right? It's in, right in front of us that we are in the midst of a change, of a great change, a big change. Our lead pastor, Danny Krause, is retiring. I don't know if you got the memo, but it's happening. He, he is retiring. And so it's this event, this retirement event, that has led me to, to think about how our faith comes under threat. Kind of, this event is what, what spurred me into thinking about uh, this passage, and it's what drew me to 1 John. I believe it's very possible that our current situation might lead some of us to experience uncertainty, to experience doubt, that this circumstance might cause us to question our leadership. It might cause us to question the future. Uh, it, it even could make us suspicious of things. It, it could uh, lead to some kind of confusion about the future or our leaders again. So whether or not this is true for you in particular, I don't know. Uh, I believe it might serve us well to spend some time thinking about what we can be certain of. What can we be certain of? So the general question I want to ask this morning is this. Uh, what can we be certain of in the midst of uncertainty? That's the, the general question that I want to answer this morning. Being a little bit more specific, what, what can we be certain of in the midst of the specific change here that we are, 
that our lead pastor is retiring and we're in the middle of searching for our next lead pastor. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 John and you ha- if you haven't yet. John writes his first letter to people who are, ha- are to people with a faith under threat. These, these, his audience has a faith under threat, and so uh, the precise nature of this threat, however, we don't know. It's hard to determine, uh, yet it is clear that John, John is writing to win his readers in the face of uncertainty. In chapter 2, verse 18, John speaks of uh, Antichrist. Chapter 2, verse 18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. There are Antichrists that are in the church. In chapter 4, verse 1, he urges the believers to test the spirits. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So you have these antichrists and you have false prophets who are going around and they're, they're teaching wrong things about God. And it's leading these believers that, Paul's, that John is writing to, excuse me, uh, to doubt their faith, to doubt their faith and have some level of uncertainty. Now, some of the early church fathers have suggested that John is writing in response to this early heresy of Gnosticism. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, John doesn't actually say that, uh, but it is good it's probably right and most likely that it was this uh, early church heresy of Gnosticism. And you might know that the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis, and so that's where we get the idea of Gnosticism. And these Gnostics taught that you needed to have some kind of secret knowledge to know God, a hidden secret knowledge. In addition to that, there was this dualism that the Gnostics taught. And the dualism idea is that uh, what's physical, what's natural, what's of the earth is evil, and what's spiritual or what's invisible is good. And so you can imagine when you talk about the humanity of Christ, that Jesus came and he was 100% man, he was in the flesh, he was tangible, we could touch him, that those early Gnostics, that early heresy said, no, he didn't. He didn't come in that way, he was spiritual. So they emphasized the spiritual and de-emphasized what is physical. And so they taught false things and that created uncertainty in the early church. So it's very possible that those, these false teachers and the Antichrist that, that John speaks of, they cause many to question or doubt their faith. Paul, or John, I'm going to do that a number of times. Uh, John says also that there are threats in the world. And so he uses kind of these general ideas as well. Threats out there in the world, or he just says them, them, whoever they are, they're out there uh, trying to dupe the Christians into believing the wrong things about God. And so, however we might identify the specific nature of these threats, John is writing his letter to strengthen the, strengthen the faith of his readers. He's writing that the readers might find confidence in their faith. And in this way, he is writing so that we, today, here, might possess here and now certainty when our faith comes under threat. And so that's my aim and my hope this morning. And so in line with John's purpose, I'd like to look at five Christian certainties. This is your thesis. Five Christian certainties for those with a faith under threat. Five of them. Now this morning, I'm not going to actually do all five. So we're going to look at the first three of those this morning, and then we'll review, and next week we'll catch uh, the last two. And so 
This morning, it'll be three Christian certainties for those with a faith under threat. And, and with that, I'd like to read our passage. So if you would, as our, as our habit is here at Rosedale Bible Church, if you would please stand with me as I read our passage this morning. 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 13. I'm going to read 13 through 20. I'll read our whole passage here. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who, has, he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. It's clear from verse 13, our first verse here, that John is writing to believers. He is writing to you who believe or you who are believing, maybe your translation says. He's writing to believers in order that they would grasp the first Christian certainty, and it's this. God has granted you eternal life. God has granted you eternal life. When John writes that you may know that you have eternal life, he does not, he does not mean that believers grow gradually into understanding. The knowledge that John writes about is not one that believers progress into. Rather, he is writing, as John Stott says, that they may possess here and now a present certainty of the life that you have received in Christ. Eternal life is a present certainty. And how is it that John can speak so confidently about life after death? What is the basis, the grounds of such a certainty. Well, look just above our text at verse 11. He writes, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Our present certainty, our assurance in eternal life is grounded in the very life of the Son. To have the Son is to understand, to believe that the full requirements of salvation have been met in Christ. Looking at the way that John actually begins this letter is helpful in John 1, the first four verses. He writes this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. It's like, John is saying these things that we have seen, we have heard, we have touched, this thing, this person, Jesus Christ, is eternal life. To touch eternal life, to hear eternal life speak, is to stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, of, of which John did, and so he can speak this way, he can write this way. 
He, he touched it and he heard it. And in doing so, he, he's that confident about the eternal life that he speaks of. He moves on in, in chapter 2, verse 2, speaking of this eternal life and, and what it did, what he did. He says in verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He says a, a similar statement in chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins. It's a fancy word, but it simply means that Christ's death satisfied the wrath of God. Christ's death satisfied the wrath of God. It means God's wrath toward you and me is turned into favor through the sacrifice that Jesus made. I like to say that his wrath is swallowed up. It's completely averted in the death of Jesus. And John wants both his readers and us to know that Jesus is our propitiation, that he has granted us eternal life in the midst of a troubling circumstance. It's important for us to understand this, to remember that he has grant, granted us eternal life. When threats arise, God wants us to grip tightly to the fact that we have been granted eternal life. Uncertainty has a certain way of pulling our focus down to this earth. As some of us, like Martha, maybe you remember her story, busy ourselves with serving when we're uncertain. We fill our calendars, we take action, but often our actions are not in, faith, in, not in faith. Rather, our attempts to find, it's our attempt to find certainty in our own strength. We fill our calendars, we fill life with busyness because we can control that. Others are more like those described in 1 John 3, verse 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is a different response to uncertainty. In a world of uncertainty, we hold on to certain goods. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, so we cling to everything. We hold on to it tightly. Stephen Charnock said, Assurance is the fruit that grows out of the root of faith. I like that quote but I want to amend it just a little bit and say this. Certainty is the fruit that grows out of the root of faith. Know this. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe in the name of the Son of God, if you have the Son, then you have eternal life. Might that fact, the fact that we possess eternal life, so fill our hearts that there's no room for it? uncertainty? Might it balloon out so much that there's no space for any uncertainty because we're so certain about what's ahead, that we have been granted eternal life. With this kind of certainty, we have no need to trouble ourselves with controlling every detail. Speaking to myself, you and I don't need to worry ourselves to death if things don't go as planned. We don't have to cling on to worldly goods. Although we have no way of knowing what tomorrow will bring, knowing that we have eternal life allows us to relieve our grip. It frees us. 
It allows us to release the white-knuckle grip we have on our lives. The knowledge of eternal life allows us to trust in the promise that, is better, that it is better to give than to receive. That the first shall be last and the last shall be first. John gives us a, a second Christian certainty in verses 14 and 15. He says this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request, the request that we have asked of him. God has not only granted you eternal life, but number two, he hears your prayers. God hears your prayers. Having obtained eternal life means that we can approach God with confidence. You and I not only have access to the very presence of the invisible immortal, eternal, almighty God, but we are able to bend his ear. Verse 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him. Hebert Hebert writes that John portrays the believer in an intimate face-to-face relationship with God in prayer. As Hebrews 10.22 reminds us, we are able to draw near. We are able to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. As I was reviewing my notes this morning, I, was, I remembered that passage from Exodus. Do you remember the description of, of Moses' relationship before Yahweh in, in Exodus 33? Maybe you don't remember where it was exactly, but uh, this relationship that Moses had with Yahweh is almost unbelievable. It's so intimate. It's shocking when we read it. And this is from Exodus 33, verse 10. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent. Thus, Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That's stunning. What's even more stunning is that Moses was a type of who? Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews absolutely knows that. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, we have something better. If Moses, a type of the Messiah, spoke to God face to face and had that kind of relationship, think about what it means for the author of Hebrews to say something like I just read, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With the, with the veil, you know, the, the, the curtain torn full access to the God of the universe, the almighty God, that he would hear our prayers. It's a compelling truth. And in such a relationship, what are we permitted to ask? Well, what does the text say? John writes that we are able to ask anything. We can ask anything. We were sitting around the dinner table two nights ago, and this topic came up in our family. And it was funny because... My, my kids kind of took this, like, we can ask the Lord anything. Like, what's the world's smallest pencil? Uh, you know, uh, how many levels are there in Pac-Man? You know, we can ask him anything. He knows he's got all the answers. Well, I don't think that's exactly uh, what this is about, but it's really the idea is we can ask for anything. We can ask for 
anything. God isn't like a, a, main, a major like trivia, you know, he could answer any questions. Uh, it's not, although that would be true. Uh, he would know how many levels are in Pac-Man and he would know where the smallest pencil is. And he might know what uh, the name of someone who's addicted to ice cream might be, which I don't know, but maybe God knows. Uh, we'll find out on Wednesday night. I'm not sure, uh, but the Greek text here says that we can ask the Lord anything. And John writes, he puts that in an emphatic position, which is to say he underlines it. He wants us to, to understand rightly that we can ask anything of the Lord. He wants us to know that we may request whatever we wish. John Owen, arguably the most influential theologian to the Puritans, he says this, pray as you think. Consciously embrace with your heart every gleam of light and truth that comes to your mind. I guess that's praying without ceasing. Thank God for and pray about everything that strikes you powerfully. Now, lest we think that prayer is all about fulfilling our own desires, we can ask anything, so I'll just fulfill my own desires. This is qualified by the phrase, according to his will. So we ask anything according to his will. Thus, John suggests that we are free to pray whatever we wish, but those requests are the requests that are to be answered are those that lay not within our will, but within God's will. As one writer put it, it is God's will, not the believer's whim, that is the cardinal criterion of, of prayer that honors God. You remember how Jesus taught the disciples to pray? Do you remember that? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. As important as it is for us to understand that our requests are always received and answered in alignment with the will of God, that is imp important. The, the major point that John is making is more general than this. Uh, verse 15, and we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If we know he hears us, then we know that he has our requests. The point is not that you and I get to enter into some debate about what we want or what we need. It's just enough that God hears us. That's the idea here. It's enough that God hears us. He has our requests. Now, if God wasn't good, that wouldn't be helpful. If God didn't know what was best for us, it would probably be discouraging. But God is good. He's infinitely good. He has all the wisdom of the world. He's timeless. He's not bound by time. And so the fact that that God, that being hears our prayers and is good in his character is a tremendous encouragement to us. It, 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 it leads to great certainty no matter what experiences come our way. Here's, the, here's what we know in a world filled with unknowns. God hears your prayers. He has our requests. When our faith comes under threat, you must know that God hears you. According to John, prayer is a bulwark against despair. Hope and confidence thrive in the certainty that God listens to his children. We might not know what tomorrow will bring in our lives, wherever, wherever is going on, or in this church. But we have this confidence that God hears our prayers. That strengthens us. 
strengthens our faith. You might know something of the prophet Elijah working this way. We might, we might save three for next week. <laughs> uh, I'm getting there. Uh, you might know something of the prophet Elijah. Elijah was a prophet during some of the darkest days of Israel's history. King Ahab ruled over Israel, and he did more to provoke the Lord than any other king. God used Elijah to send a message to that king in a day of great uncertainty. While Elijah's life was under threat from Ahab, Elijah prayed for a famine. Elijah prayed for a famine. A famine that would illustrate and teach God's people how rebellious they had become. Yet, that famine meant that Elijah himself would be without food and water. Maybe you remember this. We read in 1 Kings 17 that God did something miraculous. He had ravens bring Elijah food. The birds brought food to him and fed him. After three years, God commanded Elijah to appear before Ahab. And following an amazing testimony of God's power on Mount Carmel, Elijah prayed for rain, and the Bible says, there was a great rain. Now you think about all the words that the Bible uses, and the Bible uses an economy of words. When the Bible says there was a great rain, I'm sure that was a rain like never before or since. Indeed, there was a great rain. James uses the illustration of Elijah in chapter 5, verse 17. And I love the way this starts. Elijah, man, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Which is to say, Elijah had doubts. In fact, Elijah, the portrait of Elijah is a man who really struggled. He struggled to follow God. He struggled in a lot of ways. Some have called him the depressed prophet, whatever that means. You know, he, he was sad. He was wondering about what's next. He, was, he had a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Although his life was filled with uncertainty, and he did at times express great fear, prayer was a bulwark against despair. In the life of Elijah and it is in your life as well. That is, prayer is a bulwark against despair. In a world filled with unknowns, we know that God has our requests. Amen? I'm going to save our third certainty for next week, and we'll address, so we'll do two today. And then next Sunday, we'll do three because this next one is quite lengthy. Uh, if you want to read your Bible this week, hopefully you do. Uh, uh, as you, let me try that again. As you read your Bible this week, uh, maybe read 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. And in the center there, there's a difficult passage. In fact, people have, have struggled at length to interpret this passage of Scripture and it talks about sins that lead to death, sins that don't lead to death. And so, as you might imagine, that's going to take a little bit of time for us to unpack. And so, what I'll do then is just transition now kind of in, into our conclusion, and we'll pick that up next week. First John is a letter 
full of certainty. Maybe when I was reading that, you, were, you saw all the times he says, I, we know, we know, we know. You can underline all of that. We know, we know. There's a, I think eight times he says that just in this section. And so it is a letter full of certainty. And as we've seen this morning, the section rings with the words, we know. We know that God has granted us eternal life. And we know that God hears our prayers. God has granted and God hears And as we close, I'd like to draw your attention to the simple fact that certainty is only possible, this kind of certainty is only possible through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This means that whatever storm rages against your faith, the Lord Jesus Christ is our bulwark against despair. And recognizing that our certainty is grounded in Christ means 10,000 difficulties do not make one doubt. John Henry Newman. It's this kind of certainty that allowed John to persist while prisoned on the Isle of Patmos, although he's not prisoned here, but you think about the book of Revelation. There was suffering in John's life. And it's the kind of certainty that allowed Paul to write. This is Paul here. This is from 2 Timothy 2.12. Paul says, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That's a powerful verse. It's an expose in Christian certainty. Those are the words of a man with a faith under threat, wrapping his arms around Christian certainty. I am convinced that Christ is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Until death draws near, we can fend off any threat to our faith knowing that we have been granted eternal life, that God hears our prayers, and so much more. So come back next week. (laughs) Let's pray, and then I'll invite the musicians up. God in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to be in your word. We thank you that you have not left us without so many things to be certain of. In a world of uncertainty, it's cliche to say there is so much certainty. We know that we have a place that you have given us in in a place of of bliss and and a place where there's no sin. Uh, It's perfect and it's eternal. And Lord, we, we know that because we have this place through the death of your son, we have access to you in our prayers and we can confidently approach you. And as your word says, we can ask anything according to your will. And so God, I pray that you'd strengthen us in this. Help us to be certain of our faith. Whatever speculation, whatever doubts, whatever worry might be uh, around right now at our church because of the transition that's happening, I pray that you would help us to, to, to wrap our arms around these things that we can be certain of, Lord. Do this for your sake, and we ask in the matchless name of Jesus, Amen.